Well, please turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 2, as you turn there, again, want to just uh, encourage you to be preparing your hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper here is at the end of our time together. And then also as you, you turn there, you know, I don't want to, um, I don't want to make every week you know, Daniel's personal share time, but, uh, you know, so many of you have asked me, just want to give you a quick update on my, on my dad. Uh, they did not do a surgery uh, this, this past week. Uh, he continues to grow stronger, and they're they're hopeful that perhaps the body can kind of heal itself on its on its own. So uh, just continue to pray for that, and they need need to make some decisions about you know what does it look like post hospital, and where is he going to get uh, care and and the physical therapy he needs to continue to grow stronger. And so uh, thank you for asking about that, and and please continue to pray for them and pray for encouragement and strengthen the Lord as. They have a lot of uh, tough things to, to think through and deal with and uh, continue to be just a great source of joy and encouragement to me. Also want to encourage you to, to come back uh, this evening as we have our, our uh, time of fellowship and thanksgiving at 6 at the church building and trust that you're going to, to be able to come and enjoy that time together as a church body this evening. We're here in Galatians. We're Galatians chapter 2. We're kind of We've been in this, this first section for a while. Uh, we've been talking about the source of the true gospel, and we're going to begin talking about the content of the true gospel in chapters 3 and 4, and this, this passage at the end of chapter 2 kind of serves as a transition as Paul is confronting Peter. Now, Paul has been relating several stories to the Galatians, saying, look, this is how you know that this gospel that I'm sharing with you is the true gospel, that it, that it comes from God himself, and he's given several proofs of that. And he's saying, look, one of the proofs of that is that even the other apostles, the apostles confirm my gospel, but at the same time, the apostles are underneath the authority of my gospel. It's something that they also are uh, responsible to, to know and, and to be aware of and, and to be in submission to. And so he's going to explain that to Peter, and as he, as he talks to, to Peter and confronts him in his hypocrisy, here in verses 15 and 16, I think he's still talking to Peter, and he gives him a, a kind of a, a, a short summary of the gospel message, and it's just this, perhaps the most important sentence in all of the book of Galatians for us to, to understand, because it's foundational to everything that follows from it. And again, as you look at this, this passage, notice uh, three words, the word justified, the word faith or belief, and the word works. And if you're able to, if you'd stand with me in honor of God, as we read his word together this morning as a church, and I'm going to start a little bit earlier in verse 14, and then again verses 15 and 16 are the verses that we're looking at this morning, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one 
will be justified. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his word this morning. And Father, we thank you for this gospel message. We pray that each of our hearts would, would wrestle with the, the truths of these verses. That For those of us who have not placed our faith in your son Jesus, we, we pray for hearts of conviction. We pray that your Holy Spirit would, would work upon these, these hearts, that they'd be able to respond to, in faith to this, this message of, of faith. We pray that for those of us who have accepted your son Jesus, who received him as our Lord and Savior, we pray that we would live consistently with that. And then we pray that we would proclaim uh, this gospel to others. And we pray this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, or the children's version, or watched the cartoon or the musical, if you're familiar with Pilgrim's Progress by, by John Bunyan, you probably can picture that, that image of Christian before he comes to the cross. And he, him, him hunched down with this huge boulder on his back. And the, the boulder, of course, representing sin and, and the weight and the guilt of sin. And you probably remember that, that scene where he comes to the cross and the boulder, the shame of the weight of, of sin kind of falls off his shoulders. And John Bunyan, as he wrote that scene, was, was writing a scene that he had experienced spiritually. In fact, he writes about what God did in his life with the, the guilt that he felt over his sin and the shame from that sin. He, he writes this, he says, one day I was passing through a field and Bunyan says that there was a, a sentence that he kind of thought about as he was going through the field and the sentence was this, thy righteousness is in heaven. And Bunyan says, I, I had this image of Jesus Christ at God's right hand And as I saw Jesus, I realized there was my righteousness. So that whatever wherever I was, where whatever I was doing, God could not look at me and say, He, that's Bunyan, lacks my righteousness, for Jesus was always before him. In other words, Bunyan says, I recognize that no matter where I was, God couldn't look at me and say, Well, well, John Bunyan isn't righteous enough, because Jesus Christ, who is our righteousness was always before God. And Bunyan goes on, he says, he writes this, I also realized that it wasn't the, the good things that I did for my heart that made my righteousness better, and it wasn't the bad things that I did for my heart that made my righteousness worse, because my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he goes on and he says, now, as I, as I realized that truth, as I realized that my righteousness was in Jesus Christ, not myself, that my righteousness was not based upon how well I had done today or how poorly I had done today, but that my righteousness was based upon Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, he says, when I realized that, my chains fell off my legs. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. Again, that picture of release. He says, I I went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. What a beautiful picture of someone responding to the truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. I have a couple goals 
for what I want us to accomplish in our time together this morning as, as we look at these verses. One goal would simply be that if, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, you're not someone who's received the gift of eternal life from God, my, my prayer would be that today would be the day of salvation for you. Because I, I don't know, I don't know the, the condition of every heart in here, but my, my strong assumption would be that there are some souls in this room this morning who are still bearing the, the weight of sin and the guilt of sin and the penalty for sin, that they have not yet taken the, the free gift of God through faith in Jesus Christ, the gift of eternal life. And so that would be my first goal, that we would hear the, the gospel message, and if you're a soul this morning who have not, who have not, who's not responded in faith to the gospel message, that you would do so today. That would be one goal. Another goal that I would have for our time together this morning would be that all of us would live lives consistent with the gospel. That all of us, as we think about our our lives and the profession of faith that we've made, that we would live consistently with that profession. That we would show grace to others. That we would reject shallow Christianity. That we would reject legalism. That we would reject sin as we're new creations in Christ. That would also be a goal that I would have as we look at these verses. And then finally, my goal would be that all of us, all of us, as we think about the great gospel of Jesus Christ, that the good news we see in these verses, that we would be filled with a desire to proclaim this message of the good news of Jesus Christ as it permeates our lives. Well, let me show you the text again. Let's, let's look at the text again. And let me remind you where we are kind of in the structure of this verse, right? There's three words or phrases that occur that, that kind of serve as our outline. And these three words or phrases each occur three times in the text, okay? And so one phrase or one word is the word justified. The other word is works or works of the law. And the, the third word is the word faith or belief, we see at the beginning and the end of this long sentence in Greek is the idea that we're not justified by works of the law. So you see the word justified and you see the word not there at both the beginning and the end. Okay, So you're not justified by works of the law. Paul begins the sentence and he ends, hey, it's justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So that's the bookends. Paul is making it very clear as he begins and he ends this the sentence, you're not justified by works of the law. And then at the center, the center of the sentence is the main idea. We've believed in Jesus Christ. It's through faith in Jesus Christ that one is justified. We believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ. And that is our main idea as we look at this passage. The main idea, God justifies us through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, and not by our works. And so there's kind of three things that we're looking at, remember, as we explore this idea. God justifies us through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, and not by our works. And here's the first thing we looked at last week. The first thing we saw is every person needs to be justified. Every person needs to be justified. 
As I mentioned last week, I think all of us understand our need to be justified at, at some level. In fact, this, this past week I was... Uh, here, I heard a report from This American Life, and this, this woman was doing a story about her time as a Mormon, and, and she talked about the, the, her, her life growing up as a Mormon, and she said that uh, whenever she was younger, what children would have to do, and I think they did this from ages 12 to 18 or 20 or something like that, maybe even a little bit beyond that, but they would have this time, these, the kids would, where they would go and they would talk to a bishop or a, a pastor in the, the Mormon uh, church there, and they would have to confess their sins in the Mormon the bishop would ask them questions about their sins, and they would, they would uh, confess the things of which they were aware, and they even asked them some very personal questions about sexual sin. And, and this woman, as she tells the story, uh, believes that the Mormon church is responsible for some of the, the wrong understandings that she had, and, and certainly some of the questions and the way that they handled the sin was, was uh, very problematic, perhaps unintentionally, but, but certainly had some bad consequences. And listen to what she, what she says as she concludes this story. It's very heartbreaking. She says, Back when I was in the church, I was hooked on the feeling I got when my bishops told me I was forgiven and clean again. In other words, she said, you know, I was, I was pursuing this idea of, of wanting to be clean, and I, I had this belief that if I confessed my sins to these, these guys, then I would, I would be clean, and there was a, this good feeling that I got. And that was, that was the road that she was on, because she had that desire. She, wrote, she, or she says, I could never sit with the discomfort I felt over my sexuality, And look, I no longer believe that these men speak for God or have any authority over me, but I I can't, listen to this, I can't shake the feeling of wanting to be clean, to have someone else who knows me tell me I'm okay. I probably should accept there's no way the the board is ever going to stay white, and why would I even want it to? What's so bad about drawing on it? Isn't that what it's for? But then the second I think this, I hear another voice saying, such is the way of the adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth, mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. That's what my bishops taught me. Now doesn't your heart just, just ache for her, right? She'd pursued this, this path, and the Mormon church had taught, look, if you confess your sins, and you'll have this forgiveness. And she, she doesn't believe that anymore, but, but she, like all of us, says, okay, I, I recognize that I've been, I've been sinned against, and, I, and I've sinned, and I desire someone to look at me. I desire someone to look at me and say, you're okay, and, and it to be true. And ultimately, what do we know? We know that it's only God who can look at us, And tell us you're not okay, but I can give you the righteousness that you need that you cannot earn for yourself. We all need justification. We saw last week that justification is a legal declaration by God that one is righteous. We saw that justification is not ignoring sin, and justification, thirdly, is not the same as sanctification. In other words, justification takes place at the moment that we become a Christian, and then our our life is a life of of sanctification, of growing in righteousness, but we're justified, we're declared righteous by God the moment that we are in him, in Christ, the moment of our conversion. Justification, we saw, also requires both forgiveness of sins and the imputation of of Christ's righteousness. 
In fact, there were a couple of verses that I didn't get a chance to read. Let me, let me just read a couple of verses. So justification requires both the forgiveness of sins. So our, our sins need to be forgiven, but that, that only brings us up to zero. We, we, were, we were in debt, and now we're, now we're at zero. Now we also need God's righteousness. We need to be in the, the positive in order to have a relationship with him. So justification requires both of those things, the, the forgiveness of sins and the giving of Christ's righteousness. Romans 4, Paul writes this, what does the scripture say? This is Romans 4, 3. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as, as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, listen to this, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So, so he's saying there's, there's two ways to get righteousness. One is to work. You work and you earn it. The other way is you don't work and you trust. None of us, Paul says in the first part of Romans, have the ability to work and to earn it. Maybe you've heard kind of a, a variation of, of this uh, illustration before, but you know, this, this last week I went down in the basement to tell my daughter goodnight and as I, I walked down to the basement, uh, I, I saw that um, you know, she was kind of getting ready for, for bed, and um, I, I saw her kind of, she was in the hallway, and she kind of just backed over to the door of her room and kind of uh, shut it a little bit. And as, I, as she shut it, I, I saw that, um, she'd been very busy, but I, I saw that the room was in a state of what some might call messy, right? And, um, and I... Now, in my mind, I didn't say anything, and she reminded me later that I technically said, I'm not going to (laughs) judge. And I might have said, but if I was going to judge, I would say that's a really messy room, maybe the messiest room I've ever, who knows what I said. That's not the point of the story, okay? Um, I'm a dad who understands teenage daughters. I'm a very cool dad, and so <laughs> I, I didn't say very much, for sure, right? But imagine, imagine if I had, and again, she had been very busy and, and was, was cleaning stuff, but imagine if I, if I had been uh, the, the, the hard, mean father, and I said, look, uh, daughter, if, if this room is not clean by tomorrow night, uh, or this, this, this room's not clean by tomorrow morning, you're not going out tomorrow night. And she said, okay, and then she uh, went to bed, got up in the morning and didn't have time to clean it, goes off to school. In the morning, I go into her room, and I say, boy, uh, this, because I'm really a cool dad, I say, you know what, I feel bad for her, I know she's been really busy, and then, and then I clean her room. She comes home in the evening, and she says, I Dad, I didn't get my room clean. I, I'm not going to be able to go out tonight. And I say, look, daughter, because I'm such a wonderful father and understand teenage daughters so well, uh, I, I've cleaned the room for you. Okay? I've, I've, I've done what you needed to do, and so now I'm, I'm counting that toward, toward it's, it's like you did it. You, I'm looking at the room, and I'm seeing that it's clean, and you can go out and enjoy your evening talking about your wonderful father, right? When it comes to righteousness, we, we need righteousness. We need righteousness credited to our account. And so what does God do in this, this divine transaction? He looks at Christ's righteousness and he says, okay, I'm taking that righteousness and you're getting credit for it, believer. 
and your sin, I'm, I'm, it's like Jesus did those things. I'm crediting to him. He bears the penalty. We bear the reward. Philippians 3.9, we want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that God depends on, from God that depends on faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made, he made him who to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what justification is. It's, it's requiring both the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And then finally, and this is what we're going to unpack this morning, justification is God's gift. This is not a result of works. So that brings us to the second truth that I want us to consider together this morning. Number two, no person can be justified by works. That comes through so clearly in what Paul is saying in these two verses, right? Every person needs to be justified. Every person recognizes, I want someone to look at me and say, you're okay, and for it to be true because I've been changed. And no person, no one has the ability to be justified by works. And there's this, this key phrase, again, that occurs in the sentence three times, works of the law. So he says in verse 16, a person is not justified by works of the law. We believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And at that last use of it, he's actually alluding, I think, there to Psalm 143, 2 that tells us that no one living is righteous before you. So Psalm 143, no one living is righteous before you. And that includes who? It includes those who do the works of the law. What does the phrase works of the law mean? Well, I believe it refers to all the things that are commanded in the law. All the requirements of the Old Testament, all the requirements of the Mosaic law, those are the works of the law. And Paul says, look, by works of the law, by pursuing those things, no one is going to find themselves justified. And he says this in other places as well. Romans 3.20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Romans 3.28, we hold that no one is justified by faith apart from, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, look, if you want to get this place where you're justified, the path toward that, that, that place of justification is not works. No matter of the law. And I believe that, that, there's, that what he's essentially saying is there's no path that a person can take that's going to end through their efforts and arriving at a place of justification. And it seems to the, to the Jew, it seems like the works of the law would end in justification because they know that this is something that God has required. They know that they desire justification and yet works of the law won't lead there. Even though it seems like they might. When I was in uh, Dallas recently, and you know, sometimes I'd be driving in kind of the downtown area, and all these, you know, they have all these different highways, and they're connected in all these different ways. And sometimes you'd be kind of just eyeballing. You say, "Well, I want to get to that building right over there." And and this road, I, as I get on this road, I kind of turn. I can see this, this this building. So you get on this road, and then all of a sudden the the road takes a turn, and and you're going in a completely different direction. I really thought I was going to get there from here. 
That's what works of the law are. It looks like if I, just, if I just follow this path, I'm going to end at a place of justification. And so you work and you work and you work, and you're never getting closer to justification. And Paul says works of the law will never end that place of justification. And the same is true of any works-based effort to arrive at a place where we think God is going to say, you're okay. Here's a couple principles here. Principle number one for us to think about. God commands and desires obedience, right? We, we, we all recognize that. We, we see the truth of that. And so sometimes we think, well, if, if he commands and desires obedience, perhaps the obedience that he desires, I, I, can, I can do that, and he's going to say, well done, you're, you're now justified. But here's the problem. The obedience that God requires has to come from the heart. Here's what we see in Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, one of the scribes is, is coming to him and he hears Jesus talking with other scribes and, and um, as Jesus talks with other scribes, they ask him which is the most important commandment of all. And Jesus says the most important is to is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbors yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe says to Jesus, you're right, teacher. You've, you've truly said that he is one. There's no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the, with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus, when he saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. In other words, true obedience comes from where? It comes from a heart that is passionate about loving God and walking in obedience to him. So God commands and desires obedience, but the problem is, here's the second thing we see, God also reveals that that justification comes before obedience and not the other way around. In other words, I don't say, okay, I I, I want to walk in obedience, and and so I'm going to walk in obedience, and then at some point I'm going to arrive at a point of justification. God tells us very clearly it is actually the other way around. First, I declare you righteous. I impart to you a new life, and I, I give you my son, and you walk in the Spirit, and now you have the ability to pursue obedience. It doesn't take place through works. And then finally, a third thing we see, we see that our constant temptation, though, is to expect and to pursue obedience apart from faith. Our constant temptation, both before, I think, and, and after Christ, is to expect obedience apart from faith and to pursue obedience ap- apart from faith. And we expect obedience apart from faith in ourselves. And we expect obedience apart from faith in others. So I may say why I believe that I'm, I'm saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And yet, and yet what do I do? 
I, I look at myself and, and I, I see lack and I desire there to be, I, there, I desire to be, there to be something there and I expect there to be something there that God is going to look at and say, okay, you've reached a point where, where now I look at you, I don't have to look at my son anymore, I can look at you and find righteousness. And I, I see the lack and how do I respond? I respond with shame, I respond with self-pity, I respond with uh, anger at others. If I'm, if I'm delusional, if I'm delusional, I look at myself and I think, you know what? I can see what God likes about this. I respond in pride. I respond by concealing sin, not repenting, because I don't want others to see the lack of obedience that I have or the lack of holiness that, that I desire to be there even when there, there's the presence of sin. What about when I, when I look at other people? When I look at others, I become judgmental. You know, it's, it's the Pharisee who says, I'm so glad, God, that I'm not like so-and-so. I'm the Pharisee who says, I'm so glad I'm not like this tax collector over there. And so what happens? As I, as I expect and pursue obedience apart from faith, it means that I look at other people and I see their lack and I'm, I'm shocked. I can't believe that those people aren't walking with God the same way that I'm walking with God. And there's an arrogance, there's a judgmentalism, there's a harshness. We have to check our hearts. Obedience, obedience is something that God grants us through his divine work in our hearts, not something we find internally in and of ourselves. And we're going to see as the Galatians, we come to chapter 3 in a few weeks, we're going to see the Galatians struggle with this. They're going to pursue obedience apart from faith. They're going to begin to pursue obedience by works of the law, and it's going to be utter foolishness, Paul's going to say. Here's the third truth I want us to consider together this morning. Number three, every person must place their faith in Jesus Christ alone to be justified. So all of us need justification. All of us need God to look at us and declare us righteous. None of us can be justified, declared righteous by our works. And every person who's going to be justified must place their faith in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. Look here at the passage with me if you, again, if, if you would. And, and kind of walk through what's happening here with me. Remember, the scene. They're in Antioch, and there are two groups. There's the, the Jews and there's the, the Gentiles. And before the Jews from Jerusalem come, Peter is eating with the Gentiles. And then the Jews from Jerusalem come, and Peter withdraws, and he begins to only eat with the Jews. And the rest of the Jews are carried along with Peter in that hypocrisy, even Barnabas. So now there's these two groups. And essentially, by his actions, what Peter is telling the Gentiles is, look, if, if you really want to be right with God, if you really want to have fullness of fellowship, if you want to make like the inner circle of the cool kids of Christianity, what you need to do is move from being a Gentile into Judaism. And what does Paul say? Paul says, look, um, we're Jews by birth. We were born into the cool kid club, if it's that. And yet, what do we know? Paul looks at Peter and says, Peter, 
What did you and I do? What, what, what decision do we make by God's grace? We're Jews by birth. We, we don't have to go through some process to become Jewish. We're, we're as Jewish as you can possibly be. And what did we do? We believed in Jesus so that we could be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Peter, what you're asking these people to do is an affront to the gospel, because they have already done everything that a person must do in response to the message of the gospel in order to be justified. And what you're asking them to do will take them further away from the gospel. It's anti-gospel. Peter, Paul says... You remember what we did, right? The key word here, the the key word, the first point is justified, and the key word in the second uh, point of the message is is works. It's very obvious, right, what the key word here in this third point is. It's the word faith, the word belief. It can also be the word trust. And let me just share some very simple thoughts to help us understand what faith is. I don't want to make this overcomplicated, but sometimes when a person says you need to place your faith in Jesus Christ to be saved, okay, well, what does that mean? You say it's easy, but, but what does faith mean? Let me just give you a couple of thoughts about faith. Number one is this. Faith requires knowledge, right? When we say a person needs to place their faith in Jesus Christ, there's some knowledge that a person needs to have by God's grace. Paul in Romans ten seventeen would say, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. A person needs to, to know who Jesus is. They need to know about the reality of sin. They need, they need to know what they need to be saved from. So faith requires some, some knowledge. But secondly, faith requires agreement. Okay. So I can have some knowledge and I cannot agree with it. Faith requires me having knowledge and and agreeing that the knowledge that I I have about Jesus is true. So, for example, Matthew 21, we see Jesus uh, talking with the Jews. And he says to them, he asks them, the baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And the the Jews discuss it among themselves. And they say, look, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him. In other words, why didn't you agree with him that the things that he was saying were true? Matthew twenty one thirty two. Jesus continues, John came to you by the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. In other words, it's belief is what? It's, it's, it's awareness of some facts and it's, it's agreement that those things are true. John 6, 30, Jesus is asked, what sign are you going to do that we may see and believe you? Paul says in Acts 24, 14, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law. Now, what does it mean to believe everything laid down by by everything laid down in the law? It means to agree that those things are true. 1 John 5, 5.10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. He's saying, I don't believe the things you're saying. 
if you're going to receive the gospel, if you're going to, to hear the good news of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for your sins, you need to, to know that knowledge. That knowledge needs to be communicated to you, but you also need to agree that it's true. Here's a third thing. Faith is trust. And if, if you're here this morning and you're saying, um, boy, this guy can talk for a really, really long time about something that's supposed to be so simple, you can just, just hold on to this, okay? Ultimately, faith is trust. It's believing these things are true and placing your confidence in them, your confidence in a person in Jesus Christ for salvation and forgiveness. It's what Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. John 7, 37, Jesus stands up on the last day of the feast and he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What is, what is faith? It's coming to God and it's saying, Okay, I, I believe that the things you've said about me are true true. I believe the things you've said about your son Jesus are true. And, and now I'm, I'm placing my trust and my confidence in Jesus Christ and him fully for my salvation. There's, there's nothing I have within myself that can earn my salvation. It is all Jesus, and I'm placing my, my, my eternal soul in his hands as I trust in him and him alone to save me. That's what I would encourage every person here to do this morning. A couple more thoughts, just real quickly. Number four here, faith can't be a work, okay? Faith can't be a work. Throughout Galatians, works are contrasted with faith, and, and sometimes people, as they begin to talk about faith, begin to talk about faith like, well, this is something I did, okay? I, I, I had faith so that I could be saved, I, and, and we make faith some sort of work that we do, but, but understand this. When a person asks, why are you saved? We never say, well, I'm, I'm saved because of my faith. Like, my faith was this thing I did, and, and so it's kind of the grounds of my salvation. What's, what's the grounds of our salvation? It's not that we had some super-duper special faith. The grounds of our salvation is the work of Jesus Christ, right? And the means by which I'm brought into relationship with Jesus Christ is not my own strength. It's, it's, it's the work of the Spirit drawing me to God, right? What is faith then? It's, it's not a work. Faith is that response that I have by, by God's enabling to, to reach out and receive the free gift that he's offering me. It's not a work that I do. It's not something I say, you know what? Um, let, me, let, me, let me tell you how to have the right kind of, of, of faith, the super faith that maybe, maybe you're not capable of. And so I'm going to tell you about how I developed this faith in myself that saved me. That's, that's not what faith is. Faith is, this, is, is how we respond to this free gift of salvation that God offers. And that brings us to the fifth thing to think about here. Faith is a gift. Faith is a gift. We couldn't do any of these things without God's enabling us. God allowing our heart to respond in faith. 
Ephesians 2, 8, 9, by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is, this is not your own doing. And when he says this is not your own doing, it's a gift of God, not a result of works that no one can boast. I think what he's talking about there is, is faith in this whole process of salvation that he's been describing in Ephesians 2. Philippians 1, 29, it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. What does that mean? It means that the faith that we have is, is granted to us. Our, our ability to believe is something God grants us. John six forty four. no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day. Kevin DeYoung puts it this way, God does not turn anyone away who genuinely comes to him in faith. But if you come... It's only because God has supernaturally, unilaterally, sovereignly, and effectually enabled you to come. Now, now what does this mean? You know, if, a per, if you're sitting there and you're saying, okay, um, I, I want to believe, and so I just, do, do, you know, how do I respond? My, my encouragement to you would, would be this. God in his grace is allowing you this morning to hear the gospel message. And my encouragement to you today would be to, de- to decide to say, okay, I'm going to place my trust in Jesus Christ. I'm going to confess my sins and trust in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation and receive this, this free gift of eternal life that he offers you. And then as, as, you, as you do that, recognize this is all by God's grace that he brought me to this point. It's all by his changing my heart that he allowed me to respond. And yet, and yet I recognize that this is all from God all a gift that he gives to me because in his grace he's allowed me to understand these things. He's allowed me by his grace to agree with these things and changing my heart. And he's allowed me by changing my heart to respond in faith. Last thing here, as we think about faith. Faith produces fruit, right? Faith produces fruit. 1 John 3.23, this is his commandment that we believe the name of his son Jesus Christ and, and love one another just as he has commanded us. By God's grace, this faith that we have produces fruit. That's the gospel. That's a, that's a summary, that's a, a short, succinct statement of, of the good news of Jesus Christ that God calls all of us to believe and respond to. God justifies us by his grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone and not by our works. I want to ask the, the men to begin to, to make their way forward as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper together. And as they come forward and, prepare, and we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper, let me just remind you that the three things that I, I said I, I hope we accomplished together this morning. The first would be that all of us would be saved. And if you've never placed your, your faith in Jesus Christ, my encouragement again to you, my, my plea to you today would be, by God's grace, to respond to that gospel message, to, to recognize your need for a Savior and to trust in, in his son Jesus and him alone. And, and communion, by the way, our, our partaking of the Lord's Supper is, is uh, not open to everyone. This is a, a meal, a uh, symbolic meal that we take together, showing our, our common faith and proclamation of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if that's not you, if you're not a Christian, 
we would ask that you would refrain from partaking of the Lord's Supper. But, good news, you can become a partaker of the Lord's Supper in just moments. As you right now, even as you think about your relationship with the Lord, cry out to God and say, I, I need your forgiveness. Please forgive me for my sins. I'm, I'm trusting in your Son, Jesus Christ, alone in his work to save me. And you can partake of the Lord's Supper even now with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that would be my exhortation to each of you. Don't resist the work of the Holy Spirit, but by God's grace, trust in his son, Jesus. And then secondly, my encouragement would be each of us to live, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, to live consistently with the gospel that we say we, we believe. And so perhaps there are some relationships that you need as you prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper, that you need to tell the Lord, I'm, I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to, by your grace, restore relationship with here. Or, or perhaps I've, I've acted in a very, um, very harsh way with someone, a very legalistic way, and I need to, maybe it's a, a friend or a, a child, a parent, a brother or a sister, and say, Lord, I, I, want, I want to restore this relationship, and by your grace, I'm going to. And, and God, by your grace, I'm going to walk in a way that's more consistent with the gospel, not relying upon the things I find in myself, trusting in you and you alone to deal with the, the burden of sin and its shame. And then finally, finally, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, what are we, what are we committing to? I said my, my goal would be that we would share this gospel message with others also. If we are believers, we believe that the great commission that Jesus gives applies to us to make disciples of, of all nations. And so my encouragement would be, if, if you're going to partake of the Lord's Supper as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you would, you would pray, and Lord, give me, give me the names of people that I can share this, this good news of the gospel with, the good news that by believing in Jesus Christ alone, a person can be saved. May God allow us to live in such a way that we are passionately and consistently communicating that gospel message to others. And I would encourage you, even as you prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper, that you would ask the Lord to help you to be obedient in that area and that he would go before you working the supernatural work in the lives of other people that only he can work so that they can respond to the gospel message. Let me pray and then the men can begin to pass out the elements. Father, we thank you for the good news of your son Jesus. We thank you for the life that we have in him and in him alone. I pray even now at this moment that your spirit would work upon the hearts of people, that you would cause some to respond by believing your son Jesus Christ and trusting in him alone even right now. They would enter into eternal life, enjoy a relationship with you as they see the beauty of your son Jesus. I pray for each of us to, to confess the things that hold us, uh, that, hold, that, that, that feel like they hold us captive recognizing that you have fully and completely dealt with sin through the work of your son Jesus. Help us to live in the freedom that he provides and finally to proclaim that freedom to others. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.